You're listening to The Upland Rookie, a podcast presented by Upland Brits. Hey, what's going on, everyone? And welcome to episode 43 of the Upland Rookie Podcast, presented by Upland Brits. Also brought to you by Gunner Kennels. I've personally used and tested every major kennel brand on the market today. After months of hands-on experience, Gunner is the only kennel I'll use for my favorite bird dogs. Man's best friend deserves man's best kennel. That's a gunner kennel. Also brought to you by Trinity Bretons. For over 32 years, Trinity Bretons has worked to bring you the best bred Epignol Bretons in the country. Check them out at trinitybretons.com. Also brought to you by Anook Shook Professional Dog Food. Anook Shook's dense formulations ensure that your pup in training and your seasoned bird dog get what they need to succeed in the field. Anook Shook works hard so your dogs can work harder. Also brought to you by Pointer Freaking Traditions, baby. They have their brand new vintage collar, uh, camo collar out now. You're going to want to check them out and check out that brand new release uh, over at PointerTraditions.com. Hey, also use promo code ROOKIE15 when you're checking out at Pointer Traditions. It's going to save you 15% off your entire order at PointerTraditions.com. So make sure use that code when you shop. And also brought to you by Onyx Hunt. Use promo code TUR20 for 20% off your Onyx subscription. Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to episode 43 of the Upland Rookie Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, Make sure you are subscribed to the podcast through uh, Spotify or Apple Podcasts, making sure um, you're going to get all the uh, most up-to-date, most you know, recent episodes in your feed when they drop. So just kind of a PSA. Um, Hey guys, three things I want to update you on. One being uh, the Nastra trial I ran with Gage a couple weeks back. Um, We qualified for the regional championship. And sadly to say, uh, we did not make it past round one. Um, So they take uh, day one, which is Saturday. They take the, I think it was 24 or 26 dogs total. Um, that were running, they whittle that down. You get one run and they whittle that down, I think to the top eight or top 10. Don't quote me on these numbers. Um, and then they'll bring those dogs back for day two. Um, then they take the top, let's say top eight, then they whittle that down to top two. And then they have a, uh, the top two dogs have a one hour, uh, runoff, 10 birds out in the field, one hour, uh, dogs go and uh, uh, I believe Chris, nope, not Chris, Alan, Alan uh, won. He has a really nice short hair. Uh, so here in the Rocky Mountain region. So congrats, Alan, if you're listening to this. I'm not sure if you are, but um, 
Yeah, Alan Hyman. Uh, he's a great dude. He's had some great short hairs and uh, had a hell of a run. So, uh, way to go. Really fun event. Um, conditions were tough. Conditions were really, really tough that weekend. Um, even into Sunday, it was hot and dry. Um, our run on Saturday, the wind was on and off all day. It was... Um, it, it was kind of shit, <laughs> honestly. The wind was kind of shit. Um, so it made it tough. Made it tough for the dogs. Um, a lot of people were coming up either birdless, one bird, maybe two bird finds uh, on their runs. And so um, regardless, a ton of fun. Gained some more experience, which is always good. Um, but yeah, it definitely made for a tough run. Uh, we went birdless in our run. And um, I think my bracement, he, he got one right off the bat. Um, there's a bird walking across the road and uh, his dog stopped, got the find. And so um, all good. It was, it was a good way to uh, wrap up the season. Not how uh, I would have hoped, but um, again, great, great trial season. I guess my first real trial season and uh, had a blast doing it. So um, all good there. And uh, so we got some time off until um my next trial won't be until i think we're doing an august one here in the rocky mountain region and then uh, a couple more in the fall so i might be hit or miss again my fall plans i'm trying to think about hunting plans already and uh we got a baby coming in september and so i am just looking at the calendar trying to be realistic of, of when i'm going to get out and then looking at some plans uh, for the fall so kind of overwhelming right now to be honest um you got you know, stupid gas prices right now are crazy, like travel plans, baby coming, like all the stuff in the fall right now. I'm just like super stressed out right now, trying to uh, <laughs> navigate my fall and see what that's going to look like. So um, I will get it done. I will t- find time to get out there, uh, maybe an early September hunt before baby. <sighs> Makes my wife a little nervous, but I'm like, honey, I'm only two hours away, two and a half, maybe three. Don't tell her four. Um, anyways, so uh, it's that time of year. Starting to look at uh, fall plans. I know it's only May, end of May, but uh, I'm getting excited for fall. Um, you know, trial season was fantastic. I loved, loved getting in the Nastra, trying the AKC trial, all that stuff. Um, but now I'm kind of like, all right, I just want to get back out <laughs> chasing some wild birds. So I'm getting that itch. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you are as well. But um, hey, two other things I wanted to mention to you guys um, before we jump into episode 43. Um, first off, super, super excited. Um, y'all know I have been a final rise. Uh, I don't even know what you want to call it. I love my final rise vest and, uh, been talking with Matt Davis, uh, for several years, uh, you know, back when he launched this company and, um, you know, recently we started talking and Matt and final rise have agreed to come on as the newest podcast sponsor yes uh so final rise uh newest sponsor of the upland rookie podcast and uh super blessed to uh to have matt's support and uh and friendship really uh matt and i talk quite a bit and just i'm, I'm really i've been excited and just um it's been fun to watch his story unfold as he started this company about three years ago and just to see the work and the grind and the, and the effort that he's put in to make this company what it is today and offer the, the quality of products that he is. Uh, it's just a company that I, I knew from the beginning that I would, if I ever had the opportunity to uh, partner with, I would love to do that. And so uh, it was a no brainer decision for me. And um, I just, I love what he's doing over there. I love the gear that he's making, the way he's doing business. Um, 
made you know he's, he's making it right here uh, in the USA it's quality quality gear and if uh, if you're looking for an upland uh, vest right now um, he's got a sale going on right now. I know a sale who, who doesn't love to save some money. Um, so right now through June 5th, 2022, um, he's doing one sale a year and this is the sale. So he's got uh, 30 bucks off any vest system. That's any vest system. So you're gonna save 30 bucks off the legacy, the summit, or even the sidekick, the brand new sidekick vest. And so take a look over there. You're gonna save 30 bucks. I think like the, the, uh, summit vest which is the one i have it's the original one um has all the modularity and the customization you can do with moving pockets and bottle holders and all that stuff um that's that's my personal favorite i have not tried the legacy i might in in the future if i want to try something a little more minimal um, i just really really love um the the summit vest and so for example the summit vest system you can get that whole vest for uh, 270 after the uh, sale. So 270 bucks for a Summit vest is freaking awesome. Um, so promo code is final rise. That's it. Final rise, all caps. Uh, use that at checkout in your promo code uh, little box section and uh, save some money on a vest. Again, you can use that towards the, le the new legacy or the sidekick as well. Um, so take advantage of that right now. If you are in the market for uh, a new vest, maybe something you've wanted to try it for a while, um, now's going to be a really good time to uh, give that a try and uh, save a little money as well. So anyways, all that to say, you'll hear more, uh, you know, stuff from Final Rise, um, you know, through the podcast. But again, Matt, thank you so much. It's been a blast to work with you already and uh, really excited for uh, for this partnership going forward. So anyways, last thing I want to mention, you guys probably saw on social media, um, have a, um, a giveaway happening right now. No purchase necessary with Pointer Tradition. So we're uh, giving away a spring training bundle. Yes, a, a spring <laughs> training bundle, if I can talk today. Um, so with Pointer Traditions and I, uh, they've uh, been a sponsor of the podcast for several months. And um, they, David over there has uh, offered up some great gear as a spring giveaway. Um, we're doing a center ring collar, a check cord, a short little trading tab, which actually comes in handy for quite a bit, and uh, as well as a leash. And so you're, you're going to win four items and it's really, really simple to enter. Just go find a post. It's on Pointer Traditions uh, Instagram page and Upland Brits Instagram page. So find the giveaway post there. There's simple instructions on how to enter this giveaway. Again, no purchase necessary. It's just a giveaway. A fun little bonus is whoever wins this giveaway, um, I will reach out to them, let them know they've won. And we'll have a conversation. If you want to be a guest on the podcast, you will have an open invitation to uh, come be a guest on the podcast. Yes, on the Upland Rookie Podcast. Um, I'm a little nervous about this because I don't know who's, who's going to win, but <laughs> we're going to give it a shot. Um, so again, kind of an added little thing. We'll get to know you, your story about your dogs, um, you know, why you love up and hunting, like we're, we're, we'll make it fun. And uh, I'm excited to get to know uh, whoever wins a little bit more. Again, it, it, for you, it is optional. If you are a super introverted person and you do not want to be on a podcast, we're not going to force you to be on the podcast, but um, just know it'll be an open invitation uh, for whoever wins to uh, come on the show and uh, sit down and do a little interview. So uh, just know that's an added little bonus of the giveaway as well. 
And uh, so that's running through May 29th. So Sunday, May 29th, that's going to close. Um, so get your entries in now and uh, share it on social media for some bonus entries. And we'll announce the winner on Memorial Day. So got some exciting stuff there. Great giveaway from Pointer Traditions. Um, again, if you're in the market for some great dog collars, uh, bird straps, leashes, check cords, all that kind of stuff, give Pointer Traditions a look. Promo code ROOKIE15, and that's uh, going to save you a little money over with Pointer Traditions. So I think that's all I got for right now. I want to get into, uh, I'm really excited for this episode. I uh, I've wanted to interview this guest for a long time. Um, and yeah, it's Nick Larson from the Bird Shop podcast. Uh, Nick, uh, I think I told him this a little bit in the interview, but I uh, I started listening to him right when he, he dropped his podcast. That was the first Upland podcast I ever listened to. And I just picked up my first bird dog gauge. And so I was I was driving out to uh, Jeff's house and training and trying to get gauge on birds and trying to figure this whole thing out. And through Nick's podcast and stories and just the information, um, I was just consuming, consuming this, this information. And it led me to uh, Ronnie Bames' podcast, the Honey Dog podcast, and Travis Warren's the Upchucker podcast. They were all kind of out at that time. I know Ron's was out, you know, a lot uh, earlier, but it opened my eyes to this whole world of podcasts and I was just devouring all this information as quick as I could. Um, and so, so Nick and I, we, we, it's kind of fun. We, we talk about the world of podcasting and what that looks like and how it's developed over the years and why, why it's grown so popular. And so, uh, really fun episode, Nick, thanks for sitting down with me and doing this, uh, this show. Um, you've, you've kind of been a hero of mine and, and thank you for, uh, for what you've been doing and inspiring me to, um, get out there, start this podcast. And, uh, I know you've, you've been able to help and inspire a lot of others. So, uh, Hey, here's uh, episode 43 with Nick Larson from the bird shop podcast. I actually want to start off. Uh, did you watch the abs game last night? I did not watch the abs game last night. I gotta be honest since okay. the wild, since the wild totally flamed out of the playoffs. I, uh, as into the hockey season as I was, I've kind of had to take a little bit of a break. I mean, my, my heart was pretty broken. A lot of wild fans were pretty upset by that. And it's, you know, there's look, they were playing the blues who are obviously a good team who the, who the abs have, have, you know, been playing for the last few games. Somebody has got to lose, right. It's just the fashion that the wild lost in after the regular season they had, it was such a, it was such a screeching halt to the season. So I've, I've been taking some time to recover, recover and, recover and a yeah, bit. exactly. And focus on some other things. And you were, uh, you were so gracious in, in the, the loss after, after our little wager, you, uh, <laughs> you, you helped me through that one a little bit, you know, well, well, thank it was, you. It was well, thank good. you. It, I, I know, I know what heartbreak feels like, and I, I yeah. know the pain you must've been going through. I, I get it, man. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, well you're, you're just like, you know, you were in Chicago and you got Stanley cup champions oh, yeah. and then you go to Colorado and now you got the president's yeah, cup. I mean, you, exactly. you guys are just, you're, you're crazy. <laughs> I know. I, well, yeah, we're feeling it Poor the poor Hawks right now. I feel, feel bad for them. They're, uh, yeah. they're in a rebuild season. <laughs> they're in a rebuild. No so we'll get there, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, man, you got, come on. I mean, once you recover, you got to jump back in. This is the time of year to, to watch hockey. It's, it's lights out right now. It's, it's getting yeah. good. It's real. It is cool. Like, man, I'm so impressed at how even like how many of the first round series went yeah. to seven games. That I mean, was and, and awesome. I just checked the other day, like, like how many Stevens are like, 
or series are just deadlocked right now. Yeah. This is this is yeah. quite a Stanley Cup playoff. The, the Battle of Alberta right now, so the Flames and Oilers, that is a fun series right now. Yeah. That is just going, I mean, high scoring games, McDavid's doing his thing. Like it's it's pretty awesome to watch. Yeah. You love hockey. This is a good time of year. It is the best time of year. I got my son's <laughs> after this, my son's uh, practice, uh, hockey oh, practice. Yeah? And then right after that, we're coming back for the Avs game. So, so how uh, old is your son? He are uh, the one who's the oldest one in hockey right now. He's uh, just turned eight. And okay. We have, uh, so we have an eight and a five-year-old in hockey right now. So what, what level is that? Like, how do they do it out there? Uh, so you, so he's still in the U8 program. Um, U8, so, he, okay, so, in okay. U, so basically per USA hockey, uh, so within U8, there's four, three levels. There's beginner, intermediate, and advanced. So okay. he's going into this fall will be his advanced year. And then after that, it gets into like U10 squirts, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Yeah. My son just turned four in the beginning of April. So we, uh, we hit skates for the first time. That's maybe even a little late for Minnesotans. He was three years old. His first first time. I'm surprised it wasn't like one. (laughs) Yeah. I was lagging a little bit there, but we'll see. I, I, he's, he's, you know, I've hinted around at, at the hockey thing and we've got mini sticks and the nets in the basement and they're, yeah. They're a, a casual interest, but I got to say, he's, he's probably more interested in, in grouse than he is hockey. Hey, hey, that's not bad either. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> is not a, you got two good options right there. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's so fun, man. So fun. Well, uh, all right, let's back up a little bit. Uh, Nick, yeah. tell us a little bit about who you are and uh, put us on a map. Where are you talking to us from? Yeah, so I am in the uh, the great state of Minnesota, Duluth, Duluth, Minnesota, right on the tip of Lake Superior. This is where I was born here, grew up here, and uh, aside from a quick stint in the Twin Cities area after college, I lived down there for a handful of years. I've I've lived in Duluth my whole life, and naturally have been a, a lover of the outdoors, fishing and hunting for a long time, going way back. I've had lots of opportunities to get into that stuff over the years. And, uh, yeah, so that's, that's where I live. I, I host a upland hunting podcast, like you will, as some of your listeners may know the birdshot podcast. I have done that since 2017. It was formerly the project Dublin podcast. And then late last year switched over to the birdshot podcast as I had kind of moved on and took over the podcast on my own. And then in conjunction with that, I work for Upland gun company selling shotguns to lots of bird hunters. So nice, those man. are the, those are the two things that keep me busy most days uh, beyond my, my family and my bird dogs. And that's where I live and that's happy awesome. to be on, that's on awesome. the Upland rookie podcast chatting with you, Will. Well, Nick, I am so thrilled to have you on. Um, we've, I know we've talked quite a bit over the years, but uh, I, so I picked up my first bird dog in 2017 and okay. that was, I think, uh, when did you start the podcast back then? Do you remember? September, 2017, I think was, was episode number one. Yeah. Okay. So I re- I remember, so we picked our dog up in October that year. And I remember I crushed the first several episodes and I was like, I was waiting week to week for them to come out. And it was, it was a good time, man. It was, it was fun. I had it. We had new bird dog puppy and I was just exploring all these Upland podcasts that I had no idea were, were a thing. Yeah. I don't know how I got turned on to them. And, uh, it was fun. You made the drives to training sessions and all that a lot, a lot easier. So I'm, uh, I'm honored to have you on. Well, appreciate that. Yeah, it's, it's always, it's always fun to hear from, from folks that, listen to the show, have listened to the show and, and dating back to, you know, the, those early years. And obviously the podcasts have 
the podcast space has developed a lot and now there's, there's more and more Upland podcasts and yeah, it's been, yeah. been cool to see, see how it's all developed and have people like you come into the, come into the, the space and, and start sharing your adventures and conversations with all of us. Yeah. It's, it's been a blast. Um, I want to talk about podcasting a little bit here. And, uh, yeah. first I, I gotta admit when I first was listening to your podcast back then, I thought you were from Wisconsin for years. <laughs> not gonna lie. Well, I was like, oh, he lives in Wisconsin. That's not that far from me. And then like, cool. I don't know, it was like a year later. I was like, wait, he's in Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, well, to be fair, Duluth, Duluth Superior, AKA the twin ports. We have the twin cities in Minnesota, which is Minneapolis, say, well, that's in Minnesota. This area is commonly referred to as the twin ports, Duluth, Minnesota, oh. Superior, Wisconsin. Okay. So we are right. We are right on the tip of Lake Superior. We're right on the border of Minnesota okay, okay. and Wisconsin. So I, I'm not that wrong. No, no, you're <laughs> close. And and I, my family does have a cabin in Wisconsin, and I hunt a lot in Minnesota and Wisconsin. So okay, I feel that, so much that, better actually now. <laughs> yeah, that that lends itself to to probably your confusion. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Well, well, how's the how's the podcast going, man? How's how's the Birdshot podcast? I know you just kind of you're doing your own thing now, pretty recently, yeah. right? In the last six months or so, how's everything yeah, going to, right now? Oh, it's it's going really well. It's going really well. You know the the format of the show hasn't really changed since since it became the Birdshot podcast. This was just something that was kind of in the works and sort of my my work and career and how all this stuff has come together and. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been really awesome to, uh, to switch to the Birdshot podcast and sort of take over some of the, some of the behind the scenes stuff that comes along with doing podcasting. I wasn't necessarily doing that before. So, um, it's been a little bit of a learning curve in some of those areas, but for the most part, I think the show has maintained a pretty constant thread of what it was and what it continues, mm -hmm. continues to be. And the feedback and the response from the listeners has been, has been really, really good. So yeah, it's been a blast. I've, I've got 175 episodes out, which is not, that's not a ton of episodes. If you compare that to like a show that has been out for like the same duration, I, uh, I've, I've probably averaged like over the life of the show of like three, three episodes per month. And it's usually someone in that three to four range, but, um, yeah, I just kind of, I sort of follow my, my curiosity and, and my education as an upland bird hunter and sort of a shotgun and bird hunting and, and bird dog enthusiast. And I just sort of follow that wherever it goes and the people I meet. And yeah, it's, it's been a really, really cool way to interact with and, and interact with a lot of guests and then connect with people that listen to the show. It's a blast as you know, a lot yeah. of that stuff I know you're familiar with. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's been, you know, going into this, didn't know what fully to expect. And I think getting to, to meet people in the what I get to learn from these conversations is yeah. so valuable and, and, you know, being able to ask the questions and, and pick someone's brain on, on dogs or gear or hunting, whatever it might be like, that's been a, a learning part for me. It's been super fun. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. What's what's been your biggest takeaway when you think back over the last, what, three and a half, four years that you've been doing this, like what's, what's your biggest takeaway from doing the podcast, you know, pretty much week in week out. Yeah, man. I would say like, just like the, the amount that there is to learn and, <laughs> and get, and get familiar with, you know, like I, before starting the podcast, I have been, I have been upland hunting, AKA grouse hunting for like, it was really grouse hunting for a long time. I've, I've done more things now in the, mo in the more recent years since getting bird dogs and stuff, but I was grouse hunting from the time I was, I don't, I say 10 years old. Cause that's about when I figured the first time I went. And obviously that, 
was to varying levels of intensity being a, being a 10 year old and, and having your options limited. But once I got my driver's license and gained that independence, um, you know, then, then I started hunting a lot more and you get a little bit more freedom. And again, I, I was doing it for a long time, but like the breadth and the depth of my knowledge, and I also didn't have bird dogs back then. So that's a big, big component of that has changed in my hunting. Now. Um, it's just like my experience was, it was like, uh, you know, like an inch wide and, and kind of a mile deep, but really it's like, it's gotten way deeper now. And I, I, w- I really do think doing the podcast and talking to all of these people and like really intensely focusing on this world over the last four or five years has, it's just exposed me to a lot of things that I didn't know. And my education has come a long way. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the selfishly, it's one of the coolest things about doing the podcast is just my continued education and, and learning all this stuff that I didn't know. And, you know, still kind of feel like you're just scratching the surface in a lot of areas, but that's, that's really part of the fun. Yeah. It just keeps going. The knowledge keeps going. You keep learning. New exactly. Yeah. That's awesome. What, what do you think the the fascination is with Upland hunting podcasts out there or just hunting podcasts? Maybe like, I, I feel they've grown over the last four or five years. Like just there's, there's so many new ones out there and a lot yeah. of the ones that are still going that that's kind of started this. Uh, what do you think the, the, I don't know, like what's the fascination with? Yeah. I, I think, I mean, I think like, like I look at it from, I was a, I was a podcast fan and listener maybe at a, at an early stage. And like, uh, it goes back to kind of like shortly after I graduated college and started like started working in an office, like I was doing a lot of desk work and I, I was able to like certain jobs. I was able to listen to things while I was working. Um, and I really think that was the point where I sort of dove in and there were no hunting podcasts back then, or at least no bird hunting podcast for this was like 2011, 2012. And I just, for whatever reason, like whether or not this was always the case with podcasts, I really think it was a big part of it was they were so focused on learning and like, it was a way to get exposure to topics, Uh, obviously the audio format. I mean, if you just look at it from a mainstream perspective, clearly the audio format has just blown up, Mm -hmm. whether it's audio books or podcasts, people, it it sets up well for today's crazy world and our modern Mm -hmm. society where we feel like we don't have time for anything. And so we're always trying to, you know, we have access to all this stuff. So we're always, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because you're like, I'm always trying to like listen to podcasts while I'm mowing the lawn or doing yeah, stuff. And a lot of that stuff is great, but at the same time, like I'm, I'm, I'm thinking more lately about like, just like, you know, I have this, a lot of times I have the, the content faucet just on all the time. <laughs> all you know, like time. I'm always trying to drowned. take advantage and, and there's so much out there and there's so much good, like you can never listen to all the cool stuff. And this goes beyond podcasting uh, or beyond Upland, po- you know, Upland sure. podcasts, hunting podcasts. Yeah. Like there's so many topics that I'm interested in and I just, I love the format and clearly a lot of other people do. So I think we've seen this massive growth in, in the podcasting space in general. And the, one of the beauties of it, which is similar to a lot of other online or digital platforms is that you, myself, anybody can really start up a podcast. The barrier to start a podcast, to use the technology and start self-publishing this stuff is so low that it really is an opportunity that exists for basically anybody. And, you know, with that, you get tons and tons of choices and tons and tons of options, but you also get, you get people like, everybody can do can sort of carve out their little space and do things in their way, which is 
going to be interesting and, and attractive to some people, not everybody, but some people. And that's the, that's the cool thing. We have that choice as listeners or readers or whatever you want to call it. We've, we have lots of choices and we can kind of, we can kind of get drawn into the ones that we really, really like. And if you don't like one particular show, there's probably another one for you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, that's so well said. Wow. <laughs> I thought it. about it a little bit. <laughs> no, I can tell. I can tell. That's uh, that sums it up very well. You get, you get different flavors. You get different, you know, niches of, of yeah. people doing waterfowl things, people doing upland. Absolutely. More, more, yeah. You know, which is awesome. Yeah. It's funny. I've actually, you know, I've, like I, 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 was, I was just going to say like, you know, I, as much as like, I kind of like, I sort of think about my show as like, you know, I even refer to it as like all things upland and stuff. Like, I mean, I've talked a lot about grouse and woodcock hunting mm-hmm. on my show over the years, because that's what I have spent the bulk of my time doing. It's like, it's, that's what I love to do because it's my biggest opportunity. Sure. And, you know, for a lot of people out there, that's really interesting, but there's lots of upland bird hunters where, you know, it's going to be a, a little different flavor. And I try to mix it up because I want to reach out and I want to engage with other audiences. I want to learn about the things that I haven't done yet. Sure. But like when it comes to that really deep conversation and like really breaking stuff down, like, you know, I can, I can do that with grouse and woodcock, but I can't necessarily do that with hunting in Colorado. Like you could, will. Totally. Totally. Honey in Colorado. So great. It's so great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I got to get out there. Yeah. No, for sure, man. For sure. We got, we got a lot of species. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, quantities, eh, maybe, <laughs> Not <as great. laughs> but uh, no, I was going to say, that's, that's kind of like with, with my show, like I, I really love the Brittany. I love the Brittany. Yeah. And I always kind of have like to fight that urge. to so like, no, I, I want to learn more about the setters and more about the Vishlas and more about the Boykins. And like, and that's, that's fun though. Like once I dive into that kind of stuff, like that's fun to learn a new Avenue that, you know, again, I'm, I'm so focused on my breed. I, I love that breed. Um, yeah. But once you kind of diversify, you get to learn this whole other world of, you know, other, other things out there. And that's super fun. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. Well, very cool, man. Great job at the podcast. Keep it up. Uh, you've, Thank again, you. you've kind of, you know, I don't know, started it all. Did, do you know if you, did yours come first or Tyler's? No. So, well, well, so Ron, Ron, Bain, oh, Ron, that's the honey he's, dog podcast. Like we got to, if we're going to refer to somebody as the OG and who knows, maybe there's somebody out there that, yeah. that would consider themselves the OG even beyond Ron. But like, I remember like I, I was, a as I kind of alluded to, I was a podcast fan and it got to a point where probably around 2015 or 16, after I got my dog and I was actually working for the rough grouse society at that time, I was thinking like, I might want to start a podcast. Cause there was basically one at the time that I was listening to, which yeah. was Ron Bames, the honey dog podcast. And so I thought about that for a couple of years and I was listening to Ron and like, I was joking about this with somebody recently. Like, I think there's, there's a number of people out there that would recall that time period where you kind of, you listen to Ron's show and you're just like counting the days until <laughs> the next one would come out. Cause it was so cool at that time. There's, sure. there was a limited, limited selection. Yeah. And then Ty- Tyler Webster of the birds, booze and buds podcast started the formerly the Western wing shooter podcast, mm. like a month or two before I started mine. So like mine was kind of oh, okay. in the works. I was in the works, but I hadn't published anything. And Tyler must've started I don't know, June, July, August of 2017. Okay, so right around and, there. Yeah. And I remember texting Tyler, like, cause like I, then I was getting ready to launch mine. And of course I had a million questions about gear and, and setup and stuff. And I started texting Tyler and yeah. had, you know, that's the other cool thing. It's like, you can just kind of reach out to people. And I think yeah. most people are in this space are like that just because, I mean, 
like literally it doesn't take much to become a to become right. an alpha podcaster. <laughs> Not you know, you're, that just, hard. you're just another bird hunter, you know. <laughs> so you reach out to people and most people are so so uh like they're so quick to respond and and engage with you. It's just it's kind of cool, I guess. Yeah. It's it's one of the cool things about it. And so I start texting Tyler and I'm asking him about gear and like you know, we've joked about it since or like he was telling me what he was using, but he's like, he's like, I really had no business telling you what, what kind of gear, gear you should be using. But yeah. So then I, then That's I started awesome. in, in September of 2017 and yeah, now there's, you know, there's a new one every week. It seems like, but that's awesome, man. That's awesome. Yeah. We'll keep it up. Yeah. Um, and you touched on this a second ago. Let's, let's dive in a little bit of your, your upbringing and your, your, uh, launch into upland hunting, grouse hunting. Uh, yeah. t- take us through that a little bit. And when did the dogs finally come along for you and, and kind of walk us through that? Yeah. So, so growing up in Northern Minnesota, I think I got my, my start grouse hunting similar to, to many people that grow up in this part of the world. We, we, I think I was around 10 years old or something. There might be a photo or something with a, with a timestamp on it that I could confirm this at some point, but my, my dad grew up in, he actually grew up in Western North Dakota. Um, and he, did some hunting when he was growing up out there. He would tell me about duck hunting and I think some sharp tails and stuff. He wasn't an avid hunter. Like when he moved to Duluth, eventually before I was born and everything, he wasn't really hunting, but my, my uncle, my mom's, their brother-in-law, he was a hunter. And so we had some connections and, and they came up with the, with the great ideas one day to take my uncle and my dad to take me and my cousin, Chris out, grouse hunting. And so we drove, drove up, I don't know, an hour from home into the, into the big tracks of public land here down some forest roads. And we were, we were walking trails that day. And I remember I have the like oddly like vivid memories of this, like my first day grouse hunting, at least as best I can recall them. And I remember at one point we were driving down this forest road and a very, very common sight like up, up the road, there's a rough grouse standing in the middle of the road. You see that on the forest roads around here. And I remember like my uncle stopped the car, my dad and my uncle excitedly were like, that's what we're looking for. There's a grouse. You know, I just remember peering up between the drivers and the passenger seat, looking up and seeing that bird. And like, it just was like that moment, like something took me about that bird, this cryptic little bird standing in the middle of the road. And, and there was some cool, some cool moments that day. I remember the first grouse flushing, flushed out of this, like from under this little balsam tree. And like anybody that's heard a rough grouse flush close by, you know, they make, you know, they make quite a racket getting up (laughs) and it flew straight down the trail. And I remember my dad mounted his gun and the bird kind of banked and he didn't shoot. And I just remember, why didn't you shoot? Why didn't you shoot? You know, it's like, now you realize like, you know, that bird got out of there pretty quick. They're not, sure. they're not the easiest bird <laughs> don't to realize get a shot at. Ten, yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and we didn't, we didn't have dogs. We were just walking, walking, logging, logging roads and forest trails. And that is a way, you know, that's a way that you can hunt grouse. And so to kind of like shorten the story, like that's basically what I did. Like I became fascinated w- with it that day. My dad would take me like, usually we'd go on Sundays. I, I have a lot of memories of like going up hunting, Cause he worked on Saturdays, didn't work on Sunday. We'd drive up early in the morning. We'd go hunting and like come like noon or one, we'd be driving home listening to the Minnesota Vikings <laughs> game on the radio. Like I can, I can remember that. And like, I always want, I just, I always wanted to go grouse hunting. And so he took me whenever I could. And then, like I said, when I got my license, then I started going on my own and there were, there were no bird dogs really involved in any of this. Right. But as I alluded to, you can, you can be a, relatively successful rough grouse hunter simply by walking trails and 
yeah, finding birds. And, and I learned a lot about grouse that way. I think I learned a lot about like the interaction between me and the bird, because without a dog, like going on point or making game and flushing the bird for you, you've got to be like, you've got to be really good about taking advantage of any little opportunity that you get. Cause you're already behind the eight ball without that dog on the ground. Sure. And so like, I learned a lot about sort of making moves on grouse. And like, my biggest thing was I was trying to see the grouse before it flushed, which is not necessarily an easy thing to do. They stand still and you can walk right you know, you can walk five feet away from them and they won't move and you'll miss them. But the way to combat that, if you're, if you're hunting without a dog is to walk really as slow as you can. Mm. People will tell you to stop randomly, take pauses. And a lot of times when you stop, if you happen to stop near a bird, you stop frequently, the bird will flush. Sure. Um, so again, like I didn't find as, I didn't find nearly as many birds back then as I do now having dogs, but I think what that time period really helped me with was again, the moment, like now today, if my dog is on point, when I'm walking in, like my eyes are scanning, mm. I I'm able to see lots of birds on the ground. And like, some people will tell you, like, don't look for the bird on the ground. Just keep your eyes on the horizon. I can't, <laughs> I can't help myself. Yeah. Like for like 20 years, Just like my, yeah, my favorite thing to do was look like spot a grouse on the <laughs> ground. So I still do that. Mm. And uh, yeah, so, so that was a lot of fun. And then, Fast forward until I graduated college, lived in the cities, knew that I wanted to move back to Duluth. And that was around 2014. I, before I moved back, I'd put a deposit down on a dog, which was my first bird dog, English setter named Hartley. He's eight years old. Well, he'll be eight years old in June. And we can talk, we can talk about how I landed on English setters if you want, but I, I did that. And, and then like, had to find still had to find a job and buy a house. Like it was sure. this whole thing with, with my wife and I, we wanted to do it, but we didn't have that totally planned out, but it was like, okay, we have the deposit down. If I get a job in Duluth and we move back and I buy a house then we can take the puppy. Otherwise we were just going <laughs> to, we were just going to like, like kick that down the road a little bit. And anyways, long story short, found a job in Duluth, moved back in 2014, got the, got the first bird dog. Nice. And yeah, that's, that feels like, feels like kind of a long time ago now. Now I've got, now I've got two of them and yeah, yeah. it's a blast. It's, it's grown from there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so we'll, we'll touch on the setters in a, in a le- little bit here. I really want to know kind of what, what led you to them. Um, but think yeah. about like, your experience in the upland hunting. It, it, were there, were there any barriers to entry getting into upland hunting again, based on where you grew up and all that, like your age, yeah. anything like, were there any barriers or entry? And like, with that, like, what are some things you think that people face these days? Is it geographically where they live, uh, whether their family hunted or didn't like t- talk about your experience first. Like, were there yeah. any challenges that you had to kind of face as you were getting into hunting? I, I don't really like, I think I, I had, I used to say this a lot. Like I sort of had the easy way in, you know, my dad, my dad exposed me to it. He took me like whenever he could gave me an opportunity. Obviously I, I, I liked it and wanted to do it. And again, living where I live, we had access to birds. And like one of the other things that I, I jokingly say is like, if, if I had a barrier, it was before I had my driver's license. Like we were, <laughs> you know, like I was begging my mom to like sure. drive us up to the, to the gravel road or something. And like, man, there's, I remember a, a grouse opener. I must've been in high school or something like ninth or 10th grade. And, and we did this a few times where 
we would, and I was talking to Matt Davis about this because he, he did a similar thing with his mom where she would drop him off at the top of the canyon and wait for him at the bottom. And we did that where I remember opening day, like my dad dropped me off, I think on his way to work, he dropped me and a friend off at this, <laughs> awesome. like the middle of the woods at this forest road. And we went and hunted and, and one of our parents picked us up like <laughs> midday, which like, if I, as I think about like hilarious. doing that with, with my son or something right. today, it just, it feels crazy, but yeah. I don't know, thanks to my parents, I guess for, hey, for you doing have cool that. Parents. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So pick you up I, later, son. Exactly. I, I remember another day, like I, I wanted to go hunting so bad. I begged my mom to take me and like my dad had the truck and we had a Toyota Camry and, and my mom, we drove the Toyota Camry down this road and like we almost got stuck, but we did. I remember my mom being, my mom being pretty nervous, but awesome. if I had a barrier, that was it. Like yeah. not having that driver's license. But then as soon as I got that, um, you know, we have access to public land here and, you know, to, to your point about like, what are the barriers today? I, I think, I think that's a huge one for folks would be not having access to wild birds. Um, you know, 10, 15 minutes here and I can be hunting on, on public land, wild birds. So that's a huge, um, don't like rub it barrier. In, don't rub it removed. in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but I think about like a tool like Onyx hunt. Mm -hmm. I mean, like when we were, when we were hunting back then, you know, it used to be plat books. I never owned a plaid book. Like we just, mm. and, and the way that the rules are written up here in Minnesota is that if, if you, if a, piece of forested land is private, but unposted, you can hunt it. Mm. Now, I don't think I, I think I very rarely hunted private land, even though the rules are written that way. I sure. think we were most of the time we were hunting on public land, but to find covers back then, like we were mm. just driving around and anywhere that looked halfway decent, that didn't have a no trespassing sign we were hunting, but I didn't know I wasn't connecting all the dots. Like you can sure. with Onyx hunt, like knowing, Oh, this is a piece of, this is a piece of County land, or this is state land, or this is federal forest. Like all the information that we have yeah. today. And I mean, that's not even getting into like timber harvest and cut and forestry sure. data. I mean, all that stuff I use today and it makes yeah. me a way better and more efficient hunter. Um, so there's no shortage of information and, you know, the podcast included folks can kind of learn about things a lot easier. Um, but I think, I think location is a big one. Mm -hmm. And then just because you have information to go do something doesn't mean that you're, you know, you still have to get over that feeling of uncomfortability. Like you get out of your comfort zone you're not confident in, sure. in hunting or shooting, or you're not confident in what you're doing. I'm kind of like, I'm sort of doing that with turkey hunting right now. Like I've, mm. I'm in my fourth year of turkey hunting, but it's, I, I don't have a ton of time doing it. And so I'm out of my comfort zone. It's, it's totally different feeling than sure. like my rough grouse hunting. And man, it's really helpful if you've got a friend, AKA a mentor, you yeah. know, a buddy or somebody that can kind of help you through sure. all those little micro decisions that you have to make when you're new to something. Yeah. Um, so I, I would think those two things would be the toughest, but they're not, not, neither of those are insurmountable, right? Sure. Absolutely. They're, they're easy to overcome. You just got to put a little effort in and yeah. make a couple asks and you know, someone tells you, no, it's okay. <laughs> Ask someone yeah. else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You got to want it. Yeah. I mean, think of the ability we have to connect with, with other people too, you oh, know, yeah. it's way easier you, to find yeah. up bird hunters. I mean, all these people with, with, whether it's Instagram accounts or whatever, yeah. social media in itself, has yep. given us the option to reach out to someone and, and it takes the willingness of that person to reach out and be like, Hey, Nick, Hey, Will, whoever it is, um, what pointers can you give me? Whatever it might be. Exactly. You know? Yeah. 
Yeah. And there's a whole, there's a whole art and nuance to that, you know, asking the right questions and yeah. bringing the right attitude to the table. I mean, we yeah. could go on and on about that stuff, but um, yeah, it's a, it's interesting. I just, I think about like how all of the different things we could be doing activities and stuff right, right. now. And like, it's upland bird hunting is such a tiny little drop in the bucket compared yeah. to like everything else that people in 2022 are thinking about, but there's yeah. no doubt there's, there's lots of attention on it and folks yeah. are finding it every day and starting, starting hunting every year. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the things that you mentioned a little bit ago um, was about like timber cut and a timber harvest on a, on a basic level. Can you just talk about when it comes to grouse hunting in the, in the North or the, yeah, the North <laughs> up North. Yeah. Um, like what does that do for the birds and like, how, how can you use that to your advantage when you're hunting birds up there? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, good question. Um, uh, I just actually was at a, um, I was at Piner's grouse camp over the weekend, which is a, it's a hunting outfit nearby a friend of mine, Jerry Havel owns it. And there were, we had a little weekend there in conjunction with Onyx hunt. Uh, Ben Bredigan was there and we were, doing some educational stuff and we were looking at maps and along with maps, we were talking a lot about forestry data and, mm. and timber harvest and cuts. Nice. And so when it comes to, when it comes to rough grouse and woodcock for that matter, the, probably the, the umbrella term that would encapsulate what we're oftentimes talking about would be early successional habitat, which is young forest or, um, younger forests. And that term can, can mean a lot of different things and a lot of, I mean, early successional forests exists all over the place, but we are typically talking about a specific type of early successional forest. Um, but in the upper great lakes, we're often as rough to grouse and woodcock hunters, we're often talking about Aspen forests, but it doesn't have to be Aspen. And that especially is true in other areas of the country where Aspen isn't such a predominant species type. You've got, you might have young oak forests or young maple forests or um, any, any other kind of thing. And, and a lot of times what the birds need is it's the stem density and the structural component that a young forest would provide beyond it being just an aspen tree or something so you so, have so density density yeah. talking like a lot of young trees together yes. okay yes yep so high stem density high stem density and what the the wild bio, biologists use a term called structural diversity mm-hmm. um which is not necessarily just like they want to see and what what i want to see as a grouse hunter not just a bunch of trees shooting straight up out of the ground but mm-hmm. i got horizontal stuff and structural diversity because what that does is it's good nesting and brooding cover for the birds it's where they where they grow up and it, it, it makes it hard for predators to get through. And so if you've got a lot of stems coming up out of the ground, that's going to make it hard for a fox or a coyote or something to get through those stems. And then if you've got, and then avian predators are a big one for rough grouse. So if you've got horizontal branches and stems and more stems, cover for them, it exactly. It's going to make it hard for, for them to get through too. So I think that's one of the main, obviously there's food sources. You need food and cover when it comes to birds, but there, there's food in and around these places but but it's it's protective cover for for rough grouse and so we as grouse hunters are often seeking out those young aspen forests and a common common age you'll hear is 10 year old aspen um that is a relative term because a a 10 year old aspen stand in even one part of minnesota is not always the same 
as a 10 year old Aspen stand in the, in another part of Minnesota, a lot of that has to do with soil quality and, and like soil makeup, which, which would make a a 10 year old Aspen stand what it is. And so you're, again, you're, you're kind of looking at stem density and, and that like stand composition and, and once you have an eye for it, it's, it's pretty, sure. you know what you're looking for. It doesn't really matter how old it is, but yeah. I'm, I'm going to ask, ask a dumb question. So what would make a young forest though, better or different from an older forest? Wouldn't an older forest have a lot of those characteristic, you know, the horizontal stuff and all that? Yep. So good question. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm going off fresh information here. Like I know this, <laughs> this stuff, is perfect. But I, this was not planned I, yeah, either. <laughs> yeah. I literally, I just heard, I just heard my friend Bailey Peterson. She's a, she's a wildlife. Um, I don't know if she's a wildlife, biologist. she's, she's a wildlife manager, I think for the okay. Minnesota DNR up, up here. Okay. She's a big grouse hunter. And I talked to her a lot and she just gave a presentation on this the other day. But so the cool thing about Aspen, they are a root suckering species. So mm. when you, when you cut an Aspen stand, say a 40 or 50 year old, like out my window here, I've got like 40 or 50 year old Aspen. There's, I can count like one, two, three, I can see three or four Aspen trunks, big trunks. And if I, if we were to come in and cut those and expose the ground to, to Mm -hmm. soil that the Aspen are, they're all interconnected under the ground. There's one, one interconnected root system. And so when you cut the mature trees, the root suckers, shoot out of the ground like crazy and it's oh. not three or four it's like 400 stems that are you know like i mean oh, the numbers wow. the numbers are crazy okay. but so so they start coming out they shoot out of the ground and that's where they create this tight this lot of stem density high stem count in an area and then as the aspen trees grow what they do like this is how this is how the aspen tree evolved they start they're all racing upwards to mm. to get the sunlight and as as certain trees like become, I can't remember if, if they, if the aspen trees just cut off certain stems or if like okay. other, other, other stems just become healthier, but it's a self thinning process where oh. as the stand ages and the trees grow, you'll be walking through a grouse cover of say eight, nine, 10 year old aspen. And you just kind of, you lean on a, on an aspen tree to sort of push it out of your way and it'll yeah. just fall over. Really, and, and that is that is that stem has been cut off from the root system under the wow. ground, and so it's like a it's you know it's a survival of the fittest thing, and so only the strong trees remain, and it self thins, and so wow. as that aspen as that aspen stand ages, it thins out in stem density, offering less protection. That is which I think fascinating. Answers your question, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, it does. Yeah. So when so example first example you gave just to recap, so like you take an older tree, you cut that older tree, when that's the the ground and the soils that more exposed, then yep. more trees are going to grow. Basically, correct. Yep. That yeah. You cut off. You cut off. You cut the head off the snake. Basically, you cut one yeah. aspen tree down, and, and you know a hundred are going to yeah. pop out of the ground. Exactly. Oh, okay. yeah. so, that, so that's why you hear guys up, up north saying, "Oh, cut the trees, cut the trees," and they're talking yes. probably referring yes. to the older the older trees, it, older forest. Exactly. It's regenerating forests. Um, you, you're creating openings. A lot of it, it, you know, it's like, I think about sunlight a lot. It has to do with sunlight. You, you cut down a stand of trees and it's, it's all like, we could, you could do a whole podcast about like timber markets and the reason we're, mm. the reason we're regenerating forests and there's marketable, marketable product in the wood. And we, 
uh, rough grouse as a species benefit from that. So they're sort of coexisting and there are certain things you can do to tailor forest regeneration and timber harvesting to meet the needs of wildlife, rough grouse included. Lots of species need, need young forest habitat, which is a good thing because as you know, like us upland bird hunters, we're a small group. Um, sure. so we only have so much, we only have so much like swaying power, but <laughs> together there's, there's lots of people and groups and, and interests in young yeah. forest habitat. Um, so, so that helps, but yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a necessary component to like regenerating forests and keeping yeah. them, keeping them good good high quality habitat for rough grouse and yeah. a whole host of and other species i guess where you live is that the dnr's job to manage that forest cutting it, or is that a whole bigger it thing? varies yeah it varies because there's lots of there's lots of property ownership so we have typically if we're talking public land we've got county owned lands state owned lands and then federal aka your national forest mm -hmm. um there are there's active timber harvesting going on on all three of those property types to varying extents. Uh, the DNR is going to run their program. The feds are going to run their program. And then the counties are running their program. And the way it typically works is let's just take County counties tend to cut the most, the most timber they are in, in like, don't quote me on this, but I feel like my sense is like they're generally they're like timber, timber revenue revenue from timber sure. harvest is a big part of a lot of county budgets. So mm. they have an incentive to harvest timber oh, okay. and it's, it, it works well in the sense that you tend to find, tend to find lots of good grouse cover on county lands. Cause they, they harvest a lot of timber sure. less so on state lands and even less so on federal, federal forest, okay. national forest. And there's a lot of reasons why, why that sort of arc exists. But yeah, so, so you typically a county will say, all right, I've got this 160 acres here. We want to cut this and they will put it up for auction. And then loggers, private logging companies will bid on oh, that wow. sale and they'll come in and say, all right, you got 160, 160 acres of 40 year old Aspen. I, the market is this, I think I can make this. I will pay you the county this amount to go in and take care of it for you. We'll take the oh. trees out of there. And then the, then the logging crew takes and sells the timber. And obviously there's some margin involved in there. And sure. yeah, that's a, that's a complex system. So it's a very simplified way. Of yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate that. I'm sure the listeners will as well. Uh, last question on this. I know we've, we've went kind of deep into this when yeah. you're talking about, let's say 160 acre section, you're going to, someone wants to, to cut the trees. Are they yeah. cutting everything? everything flat or are you going in and cutting a couple trees here, a couple trees there? Do you know? Right. Yeah. Great question. And the short answer would be, it depends. Um, there are like, there are varying ways to think about that. Like if you're, if you were strictly motivated by profit, you would go in and you would cut mm -hmm. down every single tree that wasn't dead or decaying. And you would take that right off the landscape and sell it. Hmm. That's not really what that, that would be like one end of the extreme. Okay. The other end of the extreme would be you take a tree here and a tree there and try to leave most of the woods standing and untouched. Okay. Um, that's, that's not what happens either. The, the <laughs> reality the is somewhere in the middle. And okay. what you're trying to do is maximize profit mm -hmm. for, I guess it depends. It would depend. Like a County is probably going to try to be maximizing profit, but they are most counties that, that at least that I hunt and I'm familiar with, like 
profit is not like the end all be all. That's not the main motivator. There are things that the foresters that would walk in and set up the timber sale. There are things that my friend Bailey Peterson would do as a wildlife manager to sort of consult and collaborate. Because Um, they would, they would speak from, Hey, from the, you know, the bird hunting aspect, like we need to keep some. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Yes, exactly. And there, you know, that's where the NGOs come in. It's like, how can we, and this is where, this is where progress happens. This is where good things happen is when the industry of timber markets meets wildlife conservation Mm. and sustainable, sustainable resource management. I mean, it's that you could very, very much sum it up in that. So where is that balance where we all win? And I think one of the reasons why we have been able to maintain good quality hunting is, is that. The sure. markets, the markets have been able to to sell this renewable resource. We are doing it in a way that puts and keeps good habitat on the mm-hmm. ground, and we've got the cycle and everything down. But there's a lot of thought and a lot of process that goes into sure. how you would set up a timber sale. And I've got friends that are foresters, and those are those are fun conversations to have <laughs> sitting around the, the I, campfire for sure. I bet. Is because uh, you worked for RGS is RGS pretty involved in some of that? Do you think? Or yeah. you, yeah. yes, they're yeah. And, I, as I far worked, as a consulting, maybe in some of the exactly. On. Yep. Yep. So I spent a couple of years, a couple of years working for the rough grouse society. I've volunteered for our local chapter and stuff. And, and they're, they're very much, you know, they're us, they're a relatively small organization with members in a lot of States. Um, so they, they have, they really play a role of, of like advocating for rough grouse and woodcock hunting and where are, where are the win-wins and isolating and identifying those opportunities to, you know, keep, keep timber markets and that renewable resource churning like that side of things while having rough grouse and woodcock habitat in mind. So yeah, that that's, that's one of the, one of the roles that they play. And I did want to say that like the more and more I've learned, like the, the Aspen tree and the Aspen, the Aspen, they call it a clone, like this one living organism under the ground that shoots up all these stems. Like it's, I want to say like an Aspen clone, one living organism is like one of the oldest living organisms in the world. I could be, I could be wrong. There's something, there's something like really sort of unique and magnificent yeah. about an Aspen clone that I think I've, is in I've Colorado. Heard, I've heard, I've heard of this a little, uh, to yeah. some degree I've heard of uh, this. Yes. This the underground I have thing. to fact check this one. We, oh, someone please do it. Cause I don't have time right now, but yeah. um, someone <laughs> please, please fact check us. Cause that's, that is pretty fascinating. Aspens here are, yeah, they're, and it, cause they, they thrive better from what I've understood in those groups, those families. So a lot of people here in Colorado, they'll take an Aspen tree and try to plant it in their backyard, just yeah. one Aspen tree. And a lot of them don't succeed because I've, I've, I've heard they need kind of like those trees, those, that root system of, a, of the yep. other Aspens to thrive. And we, we actually just had an Aspen. It was here when we moved here, but we had an Aspen tree. It just died. It was, it was one lone Aspen planted. Wow. And someone yeah. was like, Oh yeah. See, never. if you would have, if you would have cut that, you might've, you might've resprung that. Clone. Yes. I was thinking that as you were talking, I was like, <laughs> I wonder. Yeah. Yeah. I, I recall being, I was turkey hunting. Like most people don't plant Aspen trees around here because we have so many of them, but, but yeah, it, it very much is that I recall I was turkey hunting a few years ago in a, in a, well, it was a Southern part of Wisconsin where at there, there are Aspen trees and there were some there, but they weren't there 
they're becoming less and less. Like it's a in the in the forest succession timeline, aspen is is one of those early successional species. If you just leave it alone, which like this is what would have happened pre-European settlement before we were here, if you just leave an aspen stand alone and no disturbance ever comes, aka a tornado or a fire, you know, mm. wildfires were a were a huge creator of early successional forests mm. throughout time. If you just leave it, that aspen stand will eventually all those trees will eventually die and decay mm. and fall over. And then I think the clone is dead at that point. And they're wow. usually taken over by some species type that would be a later successional for uh, species, which maple is the one that, that comes to mind. They're like a okay. later stage successional. And they, they have, uh, as you, you probably know, they have a huge canopy. Mm. They shade out a lot of stuff underneath and they kind of like choke off the forest floor underneath. And the only thing that gets rid of that maple stand is basically a wildfire that comes in there and rips wow. through. And that, then you might have Aspen suckers coming out again. Right. Right. Dude, that's wow. I did not expect to go that deep into uh forestry and, and tree cutting. That's my that's my armchair armchair <laughs> biologist slash forester conversation. Hey, I mean you you sound like you know what you're talking about, so that's good. I've got I've got good sources, I will say that. Yeah. But the, if I said anything wrong, I'm sure they'll let me know. <laughs> Someone will let us know. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, let's get into your dogs, man. Yeah. These, these these two great looking setters you have. So Hartley's eight, you said, and then how old yeah, is he'll Rose? be eight in June. Rose turned two yesterday. Actually, oh, that's right. Not. I mean, that's all yeah. oh, happy <laughs> birthday, Rose. Yeah. Um, and they are the- actually they're actually half siblings. They're they've got the same sire. That's right. So they're out of the same kennel. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. you get them from a guy in Wisconsin or Minnesota. Minnesota. Yep. Cl- close to the Wisconsin border. So yeah. another, another one for you there. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Jerry, yeah, yeah. Jerry Coulter, Northwoods bird dogs. He's nice. uh he's a very well-known breeder of English setters um, in this part of the world. He's, he's been around for a long time and breeding dogs for a long time. Um, definitely breeds, um, breeds English setters and pointers for okay. the, for the rough grouse and woodcock hunter, but really for the, for the upland bird foot hunter is kind okay. of, kind of what he would, what, what, how you would describe his kennel. Um, and yeah, I like, I guess I don't know if this is your question, but I was going to kind of go into how go I stumbled on. Go Jerry. for it. Yeah. You're just yeah, go so, there. <laughs> so kind of like going back to, to when I was, when I was moving to Duluth and, and I've told this story before, obviously, but, um, I growing up, I always thought I knew I wanted a hunting dog someday. And I always thought it was going to be a German short hair because mm-hmm. I remember German short hair was like the dog that I saw like on ESPN outdoors <laughs> sure. uh, as I was watching that as a kid, you know, uh, uh, like a roan liver and roan colored short hair with an orange collar. Like that was <laughs> what always came to mind. And, uh, and actually one of my good buddies, he got a dog before I got mine. He had a short hair Stella. Um, and that was one of the first dogs that I really started hunting over regularly. And I have fond memories of, uh, Stella. So it's nothing, nothing against Stella. <laughs> that's for sure. But when I, when I was going to get a dog, I think I started just kind of Googling grouse and woodcock dogs. Hmm. And, um, I just very quickly stumbled across an article and, uh, it was an article about Jerry and his kennel and hmm. kind of was like, Hey, he's breeding dogs for the grouse and woodcock hunter. And I went to his website and saw pictures of these beautiful dogs. And it, it really became a, a pretty short story after that. I just called Jerry talked to him, kind of told him my situation I was in, you know, first looking for my first dog. And, um, I, I pretty much hunt rough grouse and that's what I want to do. And he said, come on up and check out the kennel. And I remember my wife and I went there and we met the dogs and, you know, I, I mean, I, 
that's the only kennel I went to <laughs> after we <laughs> met like, those dogs, yeah. we were pretty much hooked. And I mean, that maybe would have happened at another kennel too, but yeah. that was about all I needed to say. I will say, I remember we walked in and when we got there, there's a kennel full of dogs and they kind of started barking and howling and stuff. And Jerry, Jerry came out and met us and we walked in and when we walked in, all the dogs calmed down. And I remember looking over at, at the, the first kennel run, I think. And there was this beautiful English setter just sitting there, just, you know, calm, calm, collected, just kind of super relaxed, mellow. And it ended up being Hartley's dad. And this was a dog, dog, dog named grits. And I just was like, sort of was like taken aback by like how cool and calm this dog was. And then you read him out about him on the website and he's, you know, he's a phenomenal bird hunting dog. And yeah, that's, that's just kind of what I remember from that day. And we put down a, put down a deposit we wanted a female dog and, Uh and, we ended up, there was a small litter. There was only one female and we had the second pick. And so uh, Jerry kind of talked to me about like why I wanted a female and I didn't really have a strong reason to do so. So I ended up with Hartley and uh, yeah, that was, that was, that was dog. Number one had a great, like a great start with him. I had lots to learn, obviously. <laughs> sure. First dog. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. So all of those, uh, trials and tribulations. Yeah. And when it, when the time came for dog number two, a few years back, it was, there was like really no doubt that I was yeah. going to go back to Jerry and it ended up being, uh, a breeding that included grits, that same sire yeah. and, uh, different dams. The rose has got a little bit different blood on, on her other side, but okay. um, yeah, I just like, I love my dogs, obviously, as most oh, of us yeah. do, but hundred oh, percent, they have, but, they have taught me so much. It's, it's been so much fun. But when you think of, uh, you know, grouse hunting is it when, when you, the first thing that pops in your mind, like, are you thinking of that setter on point in the grouse woods for you? Is, is that, what- I would say today I do, but, but I didn't like, I didn't have those visions or illusions at that time. Like, you know, I've, I've heard people say that, you know, and you read in the old books and I don't get me wrong. I read, I read some of the old books and stuff, but I, I didn't pay that much attention to the dogs where I, like, I never said before I stumbled a- across Northwoods bird dogs, yeah. I never had it in my head that I was going to get an English setter. Like it just so, wasn't, so you never had a correlation like going into it, like, Oh, grouse, like grouse hunting and setters go, go together. Exactly. That right. was not, that was not the case for me. It has become that, that like, because it's like, now it's like everything affirms that <laughs> bias for me, sure. but no, I, I, I didn't have that in, I mean, I know where it comes from and, you know, now I kind of, I pay it, pay more attention to it as I read. And I actually just finished rereading New England grouse hunting this morning. I oh, nice. Paging my way through that over the last couple of weeks. And <laughs> that's absolutely one of the classics, but um, yeah. So now setters, setters go hand in hand with me for me with grouse hunting, but that wasn't always the case. Yeah. That, no, there's, there's something classy about that for sure. That those, yeah. those beautiful white dogs and their tails and yeah, I will say I, I love having uh, a white dog in the grouse woods. I mean, that's, that's, uh, you know, you can, you can get by with, with obviously all sorts of different kinds of dogs, but, um, I certainly appreciate the, the white, um, the white dogs in yeah. the woods. It's definitely it's, helps with the visuals and until it snows little, yeah. and maybe that's why I hate hunting in the snow so much. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> well, well, your season doesn't go, does it go pretty far into the season? It where goes to, yeah. It goes to snow? December. Well, usually right around the, the new year. So, oh, okay. oh yeah. So you probably definitely have snow. Yeah. So we, we, we always get snow pretty much every year. The last couple of years we've been fortunate in that, you know, I say like the hunting stays good to great as long as there's not more than like a couple inches on the ground. It's a little bit different. Like when there's no snow on the ground, as late as, as late as 
into the year as that goes, like the hunting conditions are at peak, like they're awesome. The hunting is really, really good. And part of that is because if the forest floor doesn't have full coverage, there are usually some kind of green leafy Mm. veg uh like vegetation that the birds will be eating and so i've i've i feel that the birds tend to stay more spread out and evenly distributed across the forest Mm. as long as that holds true but as soon as you get a significant level of snow and that leaf green leafy vegetation is gone on the forest floor i feel like that's when they start to congregate more on certain winter food sources. And then, then it kind of becomes like, you'll read about late season, rough grouse hunting. It's kind of this boom or bust. Like Mm -hmm. you might walk a lot and not see anything, but then you might blow out 10 of them out of a certain area because they're all keyed in on these, on these food sources. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Dang. I got, I got to, I have to get up and uh, do some grouse hunting, man. That sounds <laughs> oh, yeah. so fun. You'd love it. You'd love it. It does sound so fun. What, um, how, how how's Hartley's knee doing? I know uh, ACL surgery, right? Last year. Yes. Yeah. Or, so we did, uh, yeah. TPLO, um, surgery new year's Eve of would have been 20, 2020, no 2021. Okay. So this past December year before. Not the most recent December of the year before. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, so it was like, so it was New Year's Eve, 2020, actually. Gotcha. The first January 1st, 2021 is when he was recovering from surgery. Yeah. So like okay. over a year ago, he had yep. surgery and this like goes back to, in hindsight, I now know that he had a partial torn ACL like a few years ago. Okay. And I started noticing, I noticed in the hunting season of 2019 that he after strenuous exercise like or a hunt mm-hmm. i should say he he was like slow to get up and out of his kennel and you know like i again first bird dog i don't know he's he's six years old like he's getting older you know all those questions in my mind sure. right and <clears throat> anyways so then we hit the off season and i noticed that this this problem continued but it was less um it was less apparent because it was not hunting season and we were just kind of doing our maintenance exercise. And if we went for a, for a real strenuous run or a long run or something, he would be kind of slow going up the stairs. Mm. Um, again, I, I had my vet look at it at one point and it wasn't significant enough for them sure. to, to, you know, examine it any further. Well, then in the hunting season of 2020, we, we started ramping up our training right before the season. And I noticed the problem was kind of getting worse. And then mm-hmm. I remember we had rough grouse opener and he, the recovery post run was degrading. Mm-hmm. He was, he was, so I knew something was, and I think in the back of my mind, I was kind of thinking this way yeah. again, first dog, never been through this, have no idea, but I had heard about it a little bit. Sure. And then we went out to North Dakota and the first run we had out in North Dakota, uh, the first day we were there, he came back to the truck and his, and his back leg went, to- he tucked it totally up. It was oh. totally lame. And so then at that point it was like, he's done hunting and we were, I was in camp and we were talking to people and talking all about ACL and, and all that kind of stuff. And we got back home and yeah, they diagnosed it. He, he fully tore it at that okay. point. Okay. Um, so then, so then new year's, we just, that I finished that season, Hartley never hunted again in that during oh, that fall Ro- rose is really young right? that was when i had rose and she yeah. was like three months old yeah she was like three <laughs> months old in september so i quickly became a became a, a, a bird hunter with just a puppy and i mean looking back like we had a lot of fun i i was able to 
get through October and stuff hunting with, with my friends and their dogs. Yeah. And I was taking Rose out every chance I could, we'd go for, you know, it was basically a, a puppy walk, you sure. know, we're, we're just like whatever she could handle a, a 30, 45 minutes going out for a walk. And that's one of the advantages that I've got living where I live. I don't have to make a trip to go hunting somewhere. I can go out for the afternoon and I can be home. I can be home that evening. So that helped me a lot. Rose hunted a ton. We had, a, that was one of those years we had a really good late season. So we were, I was hunting Rose all the way through late December. And by that time she was close to six months old. So her, sure. you know, physical capabilities and like the bird exposure she got in year number one was, was fantastic. Um, and we just finished her second season, but going back to Hartley, he did the TPLO surgery and we had, we did that on new year's Eve. So we had all season or all year last year to recover before hunting season. And the surgery went great. The recovery was great. And he does have some arthritis in his right hip. Okay. And now like the vets actually pointed that out when we first diagnosed the torn cruciate ligament or ACL, as we often refer to it. And, uh, so we, we now kind of just sort of think that he had some arthritis in his right hip for whatever reason that maybe caused some overcompensation on his oh, left side. The other, okay. That's where he, that's where he tore it on the left side. Oh, we fixed the left side. That surgery went great. The, I, I did a bunch of research on who to have that surgery done. I consulted mm -hmm. with some, some vets that I knew from the podcast sure. and they kind of all recommended this one person. So he, he did a phenomenal job. The surgery leg recovered, I would say a hundred percent entirely. He still has that, bit of arthritis in his right. And so the other one. he, he kind of, he, he doesn't have the full extension and stride that sure. he once did. And that like, like Rose did. So he kind of has a little bit more of a pace to him, okay. but long story short, he hunted last season and I finally had both dogs back in action. <laughs> That's and good. The one, the, what Harley's got going for him is six, six or seven seasons of experience. Sure. And, uh, he makes the most of his con. He doesn't cover as much ground as Rose. He's not as fast, but he's, he's got a lot of experience and a lot of bird savviness. And oh, yeah. it was, it was fun to watch, watch him hunt again this fall. Oh, I bet. I bet. Yeah. Have you gotten, have you gotten both your dogs outside of the grouse woods, like to the, some of the grasslands and prairies and stuff as well? Yeah. Yeah. We've done. So for four years now, I've done a Western Western trip, started doing that with just Hartley and some friends. And now Rose has been out there twice that first year. She didn't really hunt because she was so young when sure. she was out there. But, um, yeah, I have, that's become like probably my, I mean, one of my most anticipated trips, it comes in September. So it's at the start of hunting sure. season. And I just absolutely love going out there that time of year, getting to see the dogs run in the open country, yeah. watch them work the hills and work those early season sharp tails. It is so much fun. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, so I, I, I haven't grouse hunted, so I, I don't know the contrast and the difference, but it's gotta be so, yeah. such a different experience being in a tight woods versus that open prairie. Yes. And especially the grouse woods like undergoes like a huge makeover throughout the season, because sure. when the season opens, it's still for all intents and purposes, full foliage, like, yeah aside from a little bit of timing things and what, depending on what's going on, um, the cover, the grasses are up, the leaves are on the trees. It's green. It's thick. It's hot. It's buggy. It's humid. Like it's, it's really not the most fun place to be, <laughs> but like, I won't, I won't be missing early season grouse, grouse hunting or, or grouse opener for any reason other than 
being out West. Uh, but like, give me a chance to get out West and, and go walk that country and, and run the dogs out there. It's kind of like a great way to kick off the season. And and then I come, yeah. And then I come back here and, and then I think part of what makes rough grouse hunting around here so cool is the way the woods does transform Mm -hmm. as the temperature cools, the frost starts coming, the grass dies, the leaves fall, the woods open up, the Mm -hmm. birds spread out. Like there's just this whole kind of like the way the season plays out a lot changes from, you know, your first hunt of the year, September 15th to your last hunt of the year, which for me last year was December 26th. That was my last hunt. Sure. That's a sad sad day. Yes. (laughs) Always a a sad day. day. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Oh my gosh. Well, dude, this, uh, this has been super fun. We, uh, do, do some time constraints on my end. I got to start wrapping this up, but, um, I foresee another episode in our future. (laughs) If if you do, (laughs) I definitely definitely would love to get more into shotguns, upland gun company, all that, all that cool stuff you got going on. But, um, so one of the ways I love to wrap up is, um, you know, thinking about the rookie out there, rookie uplander, someone who, um, maybe this spring got their first bird dog. Maybe they're, they're really getting excited, um, to, to get after it this year. What's some advice that you would give, uh, give someone out there going into their first season? Yeah, obviously a excellent question. I mean, certainly take advantage, take advantage of some of the tools, tools we talked about. I mean, you, you've got the ability to arm yourself with a lot of information and I know that can be a slippery slope for, especially like my personality type, like I can definitely suffer from analysis paralysis. <laughs> so like, don't let that become a hindrance, but you know, ma- take some time, plan, prepare, map out where you want to go, get on Onyx and, and find, find a spot that you want to go hunt and, don't just have one spot, have three or four or five, you know, make sure you have a plan A or B because what you want to avoid are these, like these little speed bumps that can totally derail you. And oh, I think that's so you, know, you can, you can translate that into like anything in life, but, but do some, do some preparation ahead of time. And, you know, when it comes to gear and, and where you're going to go and that kind of thing, again, to, to be able to overcome those little speed bumps and, and keep moving ahead and don't get discouraged. I mean, it's super easy to do. Like you go out and, and, you know, just keep those expectations in check. If you go out somewhere and you don't, you don't find birds, just make sure you go again, you know, like, like take a minute to reset and go again. And then the other thing I will say in conjunction with that is, everybody says this and we talk about how easy it is. And I know it's not easy, but try to find somebody like, I won't even use the word mentor because that's kind of like gets overused, but like find it, find an accountability partner, you know, a a buddy, a friend, somebody that you're committed to with, because then if you get discouraged, that other person might be able to, might be able to keep you going. And again, try to avoid those, those pitfalls or those things that might Mm. derail you with a good buddy. That's so good. That's the gold nugget, man. That's the gold yeah. nugget of this episode. <laughs> yeah. I've been to, there. So if someone needs to rewind that and listen to that twice. Do it. Cause that's, <laughs> that's important, especially heading into your, uh, your first season. Yeah. Well, dude, um, last thing I want to do is a rapid fire section. So I'm going to ask right. you uh, a couple questions. Just give me kind of your off, uh, off the cuff answer. And then, uh, we'll, we'll wrap things up. Right. Sounds good. Cool. Um, okay. First gun you ever bought. What was it? Oh, first gun that I ever bought. Um, it was the shotgun, f- my first, my first, the first, yeah. First shotgun that I bought, I think would be a Browning BPS 12 gauge pump. Uh, okay. my first, my first girl's hunting gun was a Remington 870 express, 
My parents bought that for me after okay. I circled it in the Gander Mountain at a thousand times. <laughs> but then, then I think at some point I decided I need a 12 gauge. You know, I'm a, I'm not, I'm not just starting out anymore. I need a 12 gauge. So I, I got a Browning BPS. Oh gauge. man! And I did a little duck hunting with that. I shot a lot of grouse with that. Yep. Or partridge, partridge, I should say. But uh, <laughs> 12 gauge will make you a real hunter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, okay. What gun are you carrying out into the field now, and why? So. Right now I've got a last, last year I carried almost every day, uh, an Upland gun company, RFM Italian made side-by-side 20 gauge. Um, love that gun. I, I have, I am totally smitten with side-by-sides. I got bit by that bug a few years (laughs) ago and I'm, I'm definitely off the deep end. Um, as anybody that listens to my show will know, um, love the, the weight. It's about five, it's five and three quarter pounds. Five and three quarter pounds, very well balanced, 20 gauge, do it all you need it to do. Uh, it fits me really well. I shoot it really well. Um, there's no, there's no other gun that I want to pick up more than that. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, most clay targets you've hit in a row. No line. <laughs> uh, it's gotta be less than 10. It's gotta <laughs> really? be less than 10. Really? Yes. I, I, I don't like, I, I, I didn't grow up shooting a lot of, um, targets. I, I did see this. I saw this question on the outline and I, I laughed about it because, um, like I, I was thinking you were going to like say like a hundred or something, man. Come on. Yeah. No. And, and that's the thing. Like I, you know, I've, I think I can count on one hand the round, like the amount of rounds of skeet I've shot where maybe you, sh- you know, you shoot like 23, 24 in a row or something. Sure. I rarely have shot skeet. We have a really good sporting clays range here. So I've okay. done, I've done some of that. Um, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a super proficient clay target shooter, so <laughs> I haven't done 50 me. straight or anything. That surprised yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Um, a couple more here. Uh, favorite breed of dog besides the one you own besides the setter, man, that's a, that's a good question. Um, you know what I, I want to say? Like, I, I don't even know. Yes, I have. I have. I always, I always forget this. I want to say I haven't hunched with a Brittany, but I like Britney's. And uh, it's going to sound like I'm saying that because I'm, I'm on, Come on. Show, Come but on. I think, I think I'm just kind of prone to like, I like their color scheme, you know, oh, they're, they're, yes. they can be white and I love the orange, my little rose, she's orange and white. Um, I haven't done enough grouse hunting over Britney's, but for some reason, I, I like hey, Britney's. Nick, come on. Hey, come on. You know, <laughs> I know. I know. Let's, work this, out. Let, let's work this out. Come on. I'll bring yes. the Brits up. You, we'll hunt some, hunt some grouse in the woods, man. Yeah. Ooh, that just made my day. Um, <laughs> favorite bird to hunt and why you got 30 seconds on this. Uh, I've, I have to say the rough grouse. It's, it's, it's such so easy for me. That's it's right from day one. The rough grouse has, has what has pulled me into this world. It's continued me driving into it continued. You know, it's been at the center of, of my passion. Um, I love hunting the rough grouse. I do it more than anything and I hope to do it for a long, long time. All right. Two more questions. I'm going to try really quick. I'm going to try okay. a new, a new question on you. I've never tried this one on anyone. Um, <laughs> open to interpretation. What came first for you? The dog, the gun, or the bird? The bird, the okay. bird. And it goes, it goes back to that story. It goes back to that story that I told about my dad and my uncle taking me hunting and, and pointing up the road at that rough grouse. I like, I've, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Like there was something about that bird on that day in that place that, captured my attention in a way that it started me on this path and it was absolutely the rough grouse and that that bird that that pulled me in that's awesome and then beverage of choice after a hunt quickly some kind of light beer 
some kind of light beer. I'm not, I'm not really that picky. I used to love okay. drinking Ham's love light because you could get it in a okay. 30 pack, but they discontinued it now. So I'm a Coors Light guy. I like Coors, Coors, Coors all the way. Yeah. Rocky Mountains, baby. Yes, sir, all right. Buddy. Everyone out there, I'm sorry. Uh, Zoom is being dumb. It's counting us down again. I do have to go I as jinxed well. you. Sorry, buddy. This has been so fun, Nick. <laughs> Thank you for your time and uh, good luck with the podcast. And uh, it's been so much fun talking with you. It was a pleasure, Will. Thanks for the opportunity. Let's keep in touch, buddy. Absolutely. Thanks. And go Avs. Go Avs. Yes. <laughs> See you, buddy. Take care. All right, that's a wrap of episode 43. Thanks so much for tuning in and sorry for the abrupt ending. Uh, Zoom was being super dumb. I thought I was on a free plan and was counting me down and uh, was going to end the recording. I also had to get my son to hockey. And so uh, the perfect storm uh, uh, just kind of had to rush things at the end. Nick, I'm sorry. (laughs) Thanks for hanging in with me and uh and rolling with the punches so um also nick again thanks for your time thanks for sitting down with me and just sharing uh, some of your wisdom some of your story i always love uh getting to know people more and so anyways guys remember subscribe to the podcast make sure you're getting all the latest episodes leave a rating and review if you can on apple Podcasts or spotify you know it's going to help the show grow and get out there to more hunters just like you Hey, remember, put some miles on those boots and follow your favorite bird dog. Until next time, take care.